Hey guys, it's Colin. I just want to uh, give you guys some uh, exciting news at the top of the episode. I just wanted to let you all know that uh, there has been news of some new Korra Funko Pops that are going to be coming out. Uh, they basically kind of released these images of looks like two versions of Korra. One is with her with elements kind of swirling around her. The other one is her in the Avatar state with the image of Rava's design on uh, her uh, outfit and everything. Her eyes are glowing. It looks super dope. There's also uh, a Funko Pop of Aman, Asami, and Mako. Unfortunately, no love for Bolin. But um, these are really, really cool looking. Take a look at our Instagram page uh, to uh, check that out. And also a final shout out. I don't know if you caught it at the end of our last episode, but we had a fun little outro uh, that we did with our friends over at the Marveling Podcast. Uh, They are a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast. And if that's your thing, if those movies are your jam and you're interested, cannot recommend it highly enough. I uh, was one of the guests on the show Uh, for their episode of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. Um, So be sure to check them out, uh, show their support if that's something that you enjoy. But I will keep you no longer as we launch into Episode 12, Endgame. This is the last episode of Book 1. We are in uncharted territory after this, folks, and I am excited. All right, bye, guys. See you next week. Alright, hello everyone and welcome back to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, The Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. Well folks, uh, I am Colin, the main host, and tonight I am joined by two of my co-hosts. First and foremost, we have Kristen. Welcome back. Hey guys. And secondly, we have Kevin. Hi everyone. All right, folks, so we are continuing our discussion of The Legend of Korra, and we are finishing the first season with a final episode tonight. Uh, this this is it. This is uh, the last one to catch up, and then after this, it's going to be uncharted territory in terms of discussion for us. Uh, so I'm very excited. Um, if you did not have a chance to listen to our last one, please go dive into the emotional journey that was Susan and I getting really intense and deep about the last episode. <laughs> um, basically, last episode, Skeletons in the Closet is a really, really heavy one. Um, it is a lot about finding out who Amon is um, and Tarlock sharing their shared backstory of how Amon has been using bloodbending to be able to take people's bending away and that so much of his drive and purpose was molded by their father, Yakone. Um, and we also saw the United Forces come in and they got their butts whooped by a bunch of airplanes. Um, and now the team's like, all right, guys, guys, what are we going to do? It came up with a game plan. Iroh, Bolin, and Asami are going to go to the airfield to stop the airplanes. 
while Korra and Mako are going to head out to Air Temple Island to be able to stop Amon. That was, of course, where they ran into Tarlock and heard this very sad story. And now, as we get into the beginning of episode 12, Endgame, we pick back up with Iroh, Bolin, and Asami. So, first thing that we see is them approaching the airfield. Um, They decide to leave Naga and Pabu behind, which, again, I was like, guys, do we not realize how valuable and important they are as team members for them to be left behind? Yet, in the end, it was the best decision they could have made. (laughs) Because as soon as they... Go ahead and go forward. They walk straight into an electric fence uh, that they're like, hey, I wonder what all these pylons are. Why are there no lines? This doesn't make sense. And then just zap and they just drop. And uh, then they get taken prisoner. <laughs> um, so it, that's kind of just our introductory part. It's a nice kind of little segue. And it brings us to the rally. This is a really interesting scene because we are back at the pro-bending arena. This is such a symbol for the impact and influence that benders have had on Republic City and the society here. And Amon destroying most of it last time when he took over at the end of the pro-bending finals. And now he is using that as his rallying point to kind of give this final speech and to basically move ahead with his next phase of his plan. Um, He kind of rises up as cheers are echoing throughout and uh, he launches into this story about being burned by a firebender at a young age and how that motivated him to equalize the world. And of course, like, (laughs) like a good old fashioned heckler, Cora's just like, that's a lie. <laughs> and then there's a whole gasp. <laughs> so uh, just initial thoughts from you guys in terms of like this setup, uh, not only with Iroh, Bolin, and Asami getting into the airfield, but also getting into this rally and the symbolism behind Amon using the pro-bending stadium. I, mean, I do like, I and mean, as you were saying in the for episode 11, all of his power is derided from what he uh what's it called from his audience so this is just another method of him you know using this as like you know i've destroyed this uh symbol of the benders like we are all kind of almost like trampling on what the benders have created in their you know opulence and now it belongs back to the people like he's giving it back to them Mm. i like that Kristen. I kind of agree. It's definitely like, a, a, you know, standing on the ashes of the fallen kingdom kind of thing. Like, you know, essentially he's claiming victory by by being able to host it in the rally without anybody like challenging his authority. It is very much a power play on his part to show that he's won and that, you know, they are a power to be reckoned with. Yeah. And I, I think as we'll kind of see in how this scene starts to unfold, I think that it's actually... I think it's it's one of the only moments that I think Amon overplays a little bit and is a little bit too confident because <clears throat> as we kind of see, we have this exchange. Cora goes in and uh, she basically says, 
Amon is not who he says he is. He's a waterbender. He's a bloodbender. And he's the son of Yakon. These are all just massive bombshells that she is dropping. And you see the crowd reacting. And you also see Amon's right-hand man, the lieutenant, reacting as well. Um, and throughout it all, Amon is just keeping so cool. He is not letting it affect him. You do see his eyes widen for a moment when Cora does kind of say this because you know in his head he's like, ah, Tarlock. <laughs> um, and what's interesting is that instead of kind of silencing her, he lets her speak and he lets her kind of get this out because obviously if he would have just immediately lashed back out, it would have only emboldened her case. And I think it's that level of awareness that Amon has that he knows how to treat a situation like this where it, in all intents and purposes, should completely undermine him. But he decides to play his trump card in this moment. And he takes off his mask. We see his burned face and then suddenly Korra's whole argument is deflated as the crowd turns back against her. I, I, I love this moment because it is Amon realizing that this is his final card to play. Very much in the same way that when Tarlock was confronted by Korra, his final card to play was bloodbending her. And that also kind of signified the beginning of the end. For Amon, it's the reveal of something that has always been a, a mystery. And honestly, the way his face looks, it fools, I mean, the audience and it fools us because, I mean, it, it's insane when you see that and it, you immediately think like, well, well, I mean, Tarlock said this, but like at the same time, was he actually burned? So I don't know what some thoughts on kind of this moment in the way that uh, Amon turned that around. No, you're totally right that it is interesting that it was us also kind of being taken for a bit of a ride there, too, because then all of a sudden you had to be like, huh, I, now, now I kind of I kind of see his point. <laughs> it's like maybe like maybe we were wrong about other things about him. What what else are we missing here? I mean, obviously, it's called, you know, Legend of Korra. So she's in the right somehow, some way. But. Um, I, I like the way that they did that because then it was still playing, you know, he knew he had to play the crowd again and this was another way of him doing it. Um, but it kind of played us too. I think it was an insurance policy because mm. at this point we've, we've always barely known anything about him on. He's been pretty good about keeping his identity and his background in the dark, but you know, now that he's claimed victory and he's trying to like connect with people, I mean, he probably understood on some level that, there was the possibility that somebody could discover who he was. And so I'm pretty sure this is him covering his bases. Cause I doubt he walked around all, all the time with the burn scar, um, which we learn about later, but I feel like this is an insurance policy. He's like, I needed a background and I didn't doubt it, but I did love that they gave Cora this moment of doubt where she sees his face and she's like, Oh crap. Did I just, Oh, you can see it for like a split second where she's just like, 
God, did Tarlock lie to me? Did I fall for him and like sympathize with the wrong guy? Mm. Um, and, you know, and let's face it, what a perfect story, too, because even though this is 74 years later, um, we know from the books that there was a lot of controversy in trying to settle things after the Hundred Year War. And what a strongly sympathetic story than to have somebody uh, who's been burned by a firebender because mm. um, they've been antagonists in the series as well in both series technically because we meet some firebenders who are antagonistic in the series too so it's not hard for him to create an easily sympathetic character with this story so I remember when I first watched it I'm like I'm calling BS on this mm. I don't believe it for a second I, I didn't doubt that he may have been burned but in my mind I felt like he was probably an antagonizer if he, it was a true burn scar he had probably antagonized other benders with his anti-bender rhetoric and probably was justifiably attacked potentially by somebody who he was trying to take bending from when he was learning to be an anti-bender. So I, uh, I didn't think that his story was true. His burns may have been real when I first watched it, but I didn't believe his story. Mm. Yeah, that's really interesting too. And I'm glad that you kind of brought up the point about uh, him potentially still kind of having like the still potentially having the burn. And it made me kind of think like what would have happened if they actually, you know, if that choice was actually committed to, um, if it wasn't, I mean, it, it, a lot of it does kind of play in that final moment and it's like an extra, you know, reveal uh, as we kind of see in the end, but it, it is interesting um, that like it is, as you were kind of saying, it's his insurance policy with everything. Um, so as we see him do this and the crowd starts to turn against him, Cora and Mako are like, all right, we got to dip. We got to get out of here. But then Aman is like, well, you have to stay for the main event. And a platform rises up with Tenzin and the airbending kids bound and gagged. And Cora speaks on behalf of all of us and says, they got away. We saw them get away. <laughs> So I want to get into some theories because we never find out what exactly happened. If anything, this feels uh, very much like a, this is like one of the only moments I feel like that the plot comes in a little heavy handed because we, it, we absolutely don't know why they didn't get away. And especially Lynn's sacrifice means nothing now. Um, especially that they have been caught. So I don't know thoughts. What do you think happened that they were somehow still caught? It's known as Diablos ex machina. Yes. It's basically the, it's basically a plot twist where like nothing can go too well, basically, or if something's going wrong, it has to go really wrong. It's I, I've never speculated before as far as like what might've potentially happened. But I, I was always just like, okay, they they needed they needed the drop drum up more drama and justify like, you know the the action and things that ensue because let's face this I mean this is a pretty action packed final episode which I mean we expect but um as far as like why they were captured, there's probably any number of reasons why. I mean, how many times have we watched the series where we thought they were like finally one step ahead of the equalist and then like 
some reveal happens and suddenly it's like, well, crap, now they've got all this. They've got these airships. They're taking over the city. They're bombing the city. They've shut down everything. We can't get messages. I mean, they just cut everybody off at every turn. It's not really, I don't feel like it's out of, um, I don't, I don't feel like it, it would be impossible for them to have captured the airbenders. I definitely think with their resources, they probably would have some way of doing it, but it, it's definitely, in my opinion, just them trying to drum up the drama at this point because we weren't expecting it. We were like, oh, the airbenders are just fine. They're probably going to go find the United Forces and get a message and come back and save us all at the last minute. Nope. It was very dramatic. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Kevin? I don't know how and I don't know when, but something <laughs> with Milo. <laughs> Are you suggesting that Milo is actually a shadow agent for the Equalus? I'm thinking maybe he was like, you know, distracted or, you know, going to the bathroom or something. And then, you know, they had to take a detour they didn't want. and But Milo was going to take him there. Just going to the bathroom? <laughs> and it lets so, you know, up. I just got to stop here and go to the bathroom. And then that's when they get like, overtaken. Was he taken the way that Tywin Lannister was? He was just like peeing in a book somewhere and then he was sprung on by the Equalist? Exactly. Uh, uh, I I like where this is going. I, I think that, that by expanding off of this, I think that maybe they stopped and Milo went to go to the bathroom and he he farted so loud through his airbending that it alerted a nearby passing Equalist patrol <laughs> that tipped them off. <laughs> like they're trying to like sit silently in the background and all of a sudden he just lets loose. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, I, I, I mean, Kristen's, Kristen's you know, nobody's capable of now. <laughs> they just tried to, they had to cram so much into this episode that they needed to force some drama into it. Absolutely. And it was a way to keep Cora there. And that's the thing. It's like, they could not afford to have another location. Like, to to have Cora and them go to because again if this was a longer season I think that it would have been like okay Cora goes tries to present this Amon turns it around and then they have to retreat and then they're like okay suddenly popular opinion is swelling even more for Amon this is starting to expand and now they have to start worrying about okay we can't let this spread outside of Republic City like this it this is going to be like a contagion and if we don't do something then we have to be able to uh, we got to take a hard move but of course again limited amount of episodes and they had to kind of cram all of that in there um, again it's one of the things it's I, I still think that they make it work with the constraints that they faced. But again, there's always the what if. What if they had more time? What if this was a longer season? What if they got to expand on it more? Um, but at the end of the day, that's also not what Korra is. Korra is so much more of a action-packed, cinematic, just like you're in for a ride over the course of the season. Um, so it transitions back to Asami, Bolin, and Iroh, um, who are now imprisoned. Uh, I love that there's like a moment where <laughs> Iroh's just like, can you metal bend? And Bolin's like, no. And he looks so defeated. 
Like he's definitely thought about it before. Like, no, no, I can't. And it hurts. <laughs> yeah, That's got to be crazy. Like to be an earthbender, especially in knowing how useful metal bending is and not be able to metal bend. It's I feel like it would create this sense of just like, ah, oh, man, am I like a am I like a just a, a less evolved earthbender? And it's like, oh, man. <laughs> um. So they're there and Hiroshi uh, comes by and he starts waxing poetic about how he's sorry uh, to Asami and that eventually she'll understand. And Asami just comes right back at him and it's like, mom would hate what you've become. And that just sets him off. He is just absolutely enraged about that. And he uh, he's about to kind of go off. But then a henchman comes up and is like, hey, planes are ready. And then Hiroshi channels that anger and frustration into this very cool but scary just rage where he says, oh, yes. I intercepted your message. We know exactly where Commander Boomy is. And suddenly the stakes are raised even higher because now it's like they wanted to try to do this in case they were going to come into the city, but now they have to stop it or else they are going to absolutely decimate this force that is not ready for them at all. Um, And I just thought it was such a great way to, again, showcase the Equalists always being one step ahead of everything that they're trying to plan. But I don't know. Uh, any thoughts in terms of just like, cause we, we really get to see like a back and forth between Asami and her father in the way that they kind of set this up um, the, with this kind of initial scene and where it kind of eventually concludes to. Um, I'm just like, just even thinking of the scene between the two of them later. Mm. Oh, <laughs> oh, it hurts. Yeah. It, it's, it's 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 an interesting play out with them. Uh, I mean, it kind of makes sense for Asami to kind of, you know, try to guilt trip him because we, we see he's kind of gone axe crazy. Like he's not he's becoming unhinged as we go through things. And it, it's obvious that, you know, it's he's not going to be reasoned with. And I think that on some level, I do think Asami believes what she's saying that obviously her mother would be upset with what's happening, how he's acted, who he's supporting. And at the same time, you know, this might be the only way to get through to him is you can't get to his rational mind. So why not manipulate his emotional mind to try to get him to back down? And, uh, uh, it doesn't really work out. Does it? It does not. (laughs) So, they are left in the cell and then suddenly we hear some rumbling and then Naga comes in to save the day, destroys the the cage. And it's just like, <laughs> who needs metal bending when you have Naga? <laughs> and uh, Bolin immediately hops onto Naga. Iroh blasts off to go catch the planes and Asami gets behind the wheel of a mecha tank. Um, And one of the last things that we see is Iroh gets one of the pilots out of the plane and then he starts chasing after the others, frantically trying to understand how this vehicle works. (laughs) He has like this panicked moment as like the plane just nosedives and he's like, ah! (laughs) But man, it's just... This is what happens when you throw the pilot out of the plane. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, it's kind of crazy because like I, I understand like I mean with Asami, they kind of like brush off her ability to use the mega tank by saying like, oh, this is kind of like our forklifts. Like they try to excuse that pretty fast. And you know what? We'll let it slide because we know Asami is super tech savvy with her cars and working for her father's company. So it's it's easier to brush Asami's ability to adjust to the mecha tank under the rug pretty fast. But Iro learning how to fly, those have better be some pretty basic controls because flying is not something you can learn in like five minutes. And it it did scare me. I'm just sitting here like, okay, by all rules of logic, he's gotta die. And I really <laughs> didn't want him to. <laughs> Yeah. So as the action picks up there, it transitions back to the rally. Cora and Mako uh, swoop in to save the airbenders, um, opening up with this awesome lightning strike from Mako, which just made me think, it's just like, what if you just like, just threw lightning bolts at them, like from afar the entire time? Like that seemed to be working very well. <laughs> um, but you know, they follow it up with some, this really, really awesome, like firebending wall running. It's such a cool move. And to see them both do it in sync as they just run up against the wall and are using two fire blasts to kind of offset their weight as they are just running forward. It is, it's just such a cool use of like the way propulsion is uh, a, such a huge part of movement and firebending. I like the, this is what we're getting in Korra is things that were you may have wondered what occurred in the uh, during the old show and like things that we might have speculated on in fan fiction and and whatever we were doing on the forums. And now this is kind of like them saying like, oh, yeah, yeah, no, they've we've played around with the bending. We're back. We have some other things we can um, have uh, the fighters and the people in this do with bending. Um, I mean, we've been seeing it all through this whole season with different um Ways of bending interact of bending forms interacting, you know, in pro bending um, and different other fighting styles. So it's kind of cool to see like another one pop out, which is yes, fire is propulsion. I agree. I think in the last series, uh, any potential techniques were most likely monopolized by people being affected by the war, to where everyday people who are struggling to survive are probably, if they can bend, using their bending to help them you know, get by and survive and not necessarily experimenting and being more creative with their bending techniques. Now that the war has been over and people can't do have the freedom to do things like fight in the pro bending arena versus needing to use, you know, their, their abilities in warfare. Um, it's not surprising to see more creativity. Um, and I'm sure that, you know, the writers, especially given the gap between the original series and Korra, had a lot more time to consider some of the things that they could potentially use in a more advanced society that's been at peace for a longer period of time and has had the ability to experiment more with bending and actually progress the arts beyond just, you know, using it for your basic means or strictly using it for combat. Because let's face it, while the propulsion could have been used in warfare, um, how often were people fighting with walls that they needed to run across? You know, it's, it's, it's definitely something that I think you would see in, in a more peaceful time where people could experiment more versus uh, when we originally were introduced to bending during more desperate time period. Mm. Yeah, that's a great point. It's really this idea of uh, what happens in terms of uh, wartime versus peacetime. 
and the idea of how bending can transition from being something that is much more of this necessity for survival versus a like you said a, a like an area for experimentation and trying things like in a different way and i mean we see that from the very beginning like you said with pro bending i mean we are we are seeing mako and bolin like when they are first showing cora the way that they're doing their pro bending cora comes in with these just like really strong stances and you know they're like hey that's great form but like give this a try and they like bob and weave and just like pow pow doing really fast efficient moves for their bending and suddenly it's just like oh like that's amazing like this is a completely different approach and you have that uh you have the opportunity for a different approach with i think a change in environment a change in uh, the way that bending is approached so that was that was a great point that you brought up too so uh it's interesting because they 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 hop over there and immediately they like they just lay it on Amon and his henchmen. They are able to free the airbenders and they overwhelm them very quickly. This is one of the first times that they are able to just absolutely trounce them in such a short amount of time. And this kind of gets back to the point that I had earlier that I think that this really is showing that Amon, I think, was a little overconfident. That he thought that like this was really him kind of relishing in this moment. Like he went back to the site of this symbol of, you know, Bender supremacy, has completely turned it around, has this rally, has public opinion at an all-time high, and now like it's all starting to crumble so fast just by not being prepared in this moment. Do you guys think that's the case? Or do you think that this is also another instance of the writing just kind of being where it's at to move things along very quickly? My default with this season is usually the writing. Um, Without having thought into this too deeply before this, Um, especially going back through these couple of episodes, just they have to slam so much into it so fast. They need him in the span of, you know, 22 minutes of this episode to go from, you know, possibly, you know, taking down the avatar to completely gone. And they have to do it in obviously less than that time frame. So they had to pick somewhere, I guess, to start it. Um, It's just too bad. I know we're going to get to that later as a bonus part of this, but just how much they had to do and and the amount of time they had to do it. This is like a two, this alone, I feel it could have been the whole show, this topic. So, as we uh, kind of see this uh, this moment here, uh, you know, they free the airbenders. And I also love that, like, Amon just completely, like, overwhelms them and is, like, just knocks Amon back. Uh, Tenzin just is going, like, it's like, you, 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 you freaking bounded up my kids. Like, you're, you're going to feel my rage. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so they're able to kind of put them on the run. And then... Mako and Korra are saying that they want to create a distraction so they can lure Amon away as the airbenders escape. Suddenly, the tone of this episode shifts 
for a brief, like, you know, scene here. We go from an action-packed energy to a horror to a horror scene. As Korra and Mako scramble into one of the rooms of the pro bending arena and they hide. And Aman slowly walks in. The reality sits in for them because now they know no one else is watching. It doesn't matter what Aman does. And if we are right, if Tarlock, what Tarlock said was true, this is, this is the worst position we can be in. And I love that we see that because Cora looks absolutely terrified as she is underneath the desk and anxiously awaiting Amon to walk by as we just hear the sound of his shoes just going across. He stops for a moment and then continues walking. Cora lets out a breath but then Amon bloodbends them both, takes them out of their hiding place, and within only a few moments, takes Korra's bending away. It all happens so fast. And as we've kind of talked about, there's moments in this season, especially in these final episodes, where things happen so fast because of the writing. Whether it was the writing, I absolutely love that this happened so quickly. That there was no kind of like, you know, a longer buildup for it. Because it is just, it is Amon realizing that this is his opportunity. He uses it and just, it, it's it's almost so stark how quickly this happens. And the fact that Korra's bending has suddenly been taken away. It's definitely very dramatic, too, because and I do think, like you said, like it's so shocking. And I think that's kind of the effect they wanted to go for, because there's no point in building up drama because Amon's kind of losing control of things. So I don't think he's, you know, he's not playing in front of a crowd right now. He's all business and the airbenders are getting away, but he has the avatar. So rather than fudging around with it, he's like, let's just take care of this. And it makes sense writing wise that he would do this. So, you know, the the sped up schedule of the writers having to put out this episode in a very short series, unfortunately actually kind of plays their advantage in this moment because it makes sense that he's like, you know, he's such a control freak through this entire series. And, and this is the first time that I think they've had a real victory because they always feel like they were a step ahead. They were constantly like, Oh, look, we did this thing. And Amon's like, no, it's fine. It's all part of my game plan. I think this is a moment where it's not part of the game plan because this is his end game at this point, as the title suggests. And it's a really big deal at this point that they're messing with the final stages of his plan. And if he doesn't crush the airbenders and the avatar now, there's the chance for them to escape and muck up what he, what he does later. So I think he's really trying to tie up those loose ends quickly. And uh, Cora just messed that up. The drama, it's that it's kind of like a Steven spielberg kind of thing where, you know, he's walking in the room ever so quietly. And the whole time, Cora is just afraid of what is going to happen to my bending. And, it, you know, it's the whole thing we've been saying this season. It's like where the loss of bending is almost like, you know, taking someone's life. And it's like that type of analogy. So for her, this is, you know, like we're, we're living those emotions <laughs> step by step. 
what is going to happen? And then all of a sudden, just suddenly it's gone. Oh God. Even, even for quick riding, that's that scene was just several seconds of just pure terror for everyone following along. I, I, I really enjoy the writing of these episodes. Yeah. It's, it's incredibly potent. And I, 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 like like you were saying, Kristen. I mean, it. This is Amon's Endgame. I love the point that you brought up that it is this idea that he's had so much that has gone right, and now that something has gone wrong, he really takes a hard move. And I think in the end, it's it also as we'll kind of see in this next scene with them. It's also where he kind of he lets his guard down for a moment. Um, But before we get to that, it switches back to Iroh and the airplane. (laughs) Uh, The planes are continuing on as Iroh shoots lightning to take them out. Like absolutely amazing moments where he is just like, (laughs) like forget any of the guns or anything. It's like, I feel like there's nothing more terrifying than a firebender piloting a plane, being able to shoot lightning because he is legitimately like a storm in the sky right now. It looked amazing too. It's so funny because I was just watching, um, and he doesn't hit his own plane for a bit, which is good because that that would be very <laughs> lightning. But it would be very because I just finished watching um, uh, what's it called? The Last Crusade was just on, and I was just thinking of the scene with Sean Connery shooting the back of the plane. Ah, uh, yes. I'm sorry, son. <laughs> they got us. <laughs> I'm like, I managed to avoid that for a little bit. <laughs> and they always make those planes seem so delicate in the movies. To be fair, those planes were a, a little bit sturdier than we gave them credit for. Certainly not the hunky pieces of metal that airplanes are now. But still, it, it's it's pretty impressive. I don't know what the planes are made of. I, I mean, I trust they're not made of anything super conductive. So obviously his lightning won't jump to it. But it, it is kind of risky him standing up over the windshield and lightning bending out at people like it's it just but it looks so cool. Like, I feel like it obviously wasn't necessary. I feel like that's a little bit of a treat for us, really. Yes. <laughs> and a treat it was indeed. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because he is quickly forced to uh, abandon his plane when one of the planes in front of them shoots back a like Ebola to like wreck the propeller and this is just again as we've been saying this whole season the forethought from Hiroshi Sato for every single situation is insane what this is basically saying is that he has created an anti-plane measure planning for a scenario where an enemy would hijack a plane and created a way to deal with it. Or if there was other planes or just any kind of other options, if there was Zeppelins, whatever it was, he installed a way for that to happen. I think it just, it is such a testament to the absolute brilliance of Hiroshi Sato, but it's just, it's so sad that that brilliance is directed in a way of hate and bigotry and discrimination. Um, But again, it's also just amazing that he did this uh, and planned this all out. 
Uh, Iroh then proceeds to go uh, straight up Iron Man as he is falling out of his plane, uses his like firebending to just like straight up like it, it is you could literally fo- like just do some Photoshop of uh, like the Iron Man suit on top of him and it would just look exactly the same. I feel like <laughs> flies down to another plane, <laughs> takes out more and then single-handedly goes on to destroy all of these planes. I mean, again, it is such a testament to how insanely talented of a bender he is. But are we surprised in the least that, like, the grandson of Zuko, who was able to train in peacetime from, you know, probably some of the best firebenders in the world, is this talented of a bender? And not just that, but you have to imagine, especially with everything that happened at the end of Avatar, he might have even had the benefit of dragon training, too. Oh, yeah. That's oh. so true. Uh, I know. Wow. You know, the moment it crossed my mind, I'm like, oh, that would be so amazing if that's what happened. Uh, well, it'd be great. Well, it'd make a lot of sense. I mean, between the, I mean, A, now that you've mentioned it, dragon training, which would just be badass. Um but B, the fact that we've seen it usually follows that strong benders uh, have kids that are also strong benders. So he has a genetics on his side, too. So I guess it kind of makes sense that he's this, you know, fireman. <laughs> <laughs> I am fireman. <laughs> and they couldn't give him Dante Basca's voice without him being awesome. Let's be real. They yes. would not have given Dante a lame character in the series. <laughs> one, this is true. One does not simply utilize Dante Bosco and not make an amazing character. It just, it just doesn't happen. Exactly. <laughs> um, so we get this really nice moment uh, where as he is destroying all the planes, he is left in one that is starting to crash, but then he is able to direct it towards Towards the statue of Aang that the Equalists have now hung a an Amon mask on top of. The plane goes crashing into the mask and it falls down and he uh, Iroh manages to like hold on to the flag that they have also installed there and he tear it tears down and then he's face to face with Aang and you just hear him say Thanks for looking out for me, Ang. And it's just uh, Dante Bosco oh, that... saying that line. It's the best. <laughs> I have I have one complaint, and that it's not something like Uncle Ang, like something to suggest that he, Ang was viewed as like this this relative of the family. Because I could almost see that. I could almost see like Ang participating in his life the way that maybe an uncle or something would. So. It is an awesome line. I absolutely loved it. But when I thought about it later, I'm like, it would have been so much cuter if it was like, you know, thanks, Uncle Ang, or thanks, great Uncle Ang. That would have been so stinking cute and very suggestive of their relationship because there does seem to be an implied, almost familial-like thing about Ang's relationship with Zuko's family. Um, so I, I I, would have loved that. If, if that would have happened, I probably would have cried. Yes. I, I'm currently Googling right now how old is General Iroh. Hold on, let me see here. Well, I feel like he's got to be older than Korra, which means he had to have had at least a few years with Aang. Yes, he, yeah, oh, yeah. So it says uh, he is 36 years old. Whoa, he is young. <laughs> yeah. Well, they, they even say that uh, he is the youngest general in the United Forces history. 
Um, so it's just like straight up amazing firebender uh, and uh, clearly like a great leader as well. Um, but yeah, I, I, w- I would have loved to see that too. That would have been great because clearly they must have had a connection because if he was 36, then that means that Aang, uh, Aang died when he was 20, which, oh my God, that must have been so rough for him. Oh my goodness. I don't even want to think about it. Ah. <laughs> oh God, move on, move on. <laughs> Um, oh, who put this ang statue in a sawdust factory? <laughs> um, oh no! Oh no! <laughs> so uh, we go back to the airfield, um, and Naga shows that she is clearly the MVP <laughs> because she single-handedly takes down three mecha tanks. Uh, and like they all start shooting like their cables she latches onto all of them and just like just whips them across and it's like i love that we got to see like naga have this because that is the type of like a contribution to combat that we saw so frequently from appa um and of course appa has an advantage because he is like a giant you know flying bison who can airbend and, you know, there's a lot more I feel like he can do in it with his toolkit. <laughs> but it was I'm so glad that we got to see that with Naga um, in this moment too. give give her a moment to shine. <laughs> I agree. I, I really like that. You know, the animals, the animals never care. Like people will look at the technology and be intimidated. Like, oh, my God, this advanced technology. What do you do in the face of like, you know, all animals don't care. Animals don't see technology. She just sees an obstacle. It doesn't matter if you are (laughs) a human, a mecha tank, another animal. I mean, she's got one job and one job only. And that's to take care of her family. And Naga, I I agree. Naga is once again the underrated MVP of this episode. (laughs) Naga smash. (laughs) Seriously, but we have a Naga. <laughs> oh my goodness. So as uh, Naga is owning these mecha tanks, Bolin is destroying the runways, uh, able to stop any more of the planes from being able to take off. Um, but meanwhile, in the hangar, we see Asami destroying the rest of the planes. And she is confronted by Hiroshi. Hiroshi says to her, Asami, you are aiding the very people who took your mother away. And Asami responds, you don't feel love for mom anymore. You're too full of hatred. Oh, my gosh. Burn. <laughs> uh, and then we get a mecha tank fight between Asami and Hiroshi. And it is it is awesome. I love that we it, it, we, it has been building towards this. Ever since Asami turned on her father um, and sided with her friends, uh, we've been seeing Asami just become more and more familiar with this equalist technology and using it and being able to use her father's own weapons of destruction against the very people that he is supporting. And Asami and Hiroshi go toe-to-toe. And then... You know, he knocks her prone and he exclaims there is like there's there's no saving her now at this point. He prepares to strike. This is a crazy moment because it really shows how far gone he is that he is really willing to 
you know, make this fatal blow towards his own daughter. Yeah. I'm sure Asami wasn't very happy knowing that she was completely right about him in this moment. Like it really is just, you know, I, I feel like we see this in a lot of like superhero movies where like the person's heart is just completely full of hate. Like, and she's right in this case, he, he's so blinded by what he's doing that he's going to do this to his own daughter. Like, it clearly isn't about, you know, trying to make the world a better place or anything like that. It's about just exacting revenge on anyone he thinks is an enemy. So, again, takes that moment, but then Bolin comes in. I love this entrance from him. And he is just like, <laughs> it's like, Mr. Sato. It's just like flinging the rock, like the rocks of riding Naga in. It is such a beautiful moment. Um, and Hiroshi is distracted long enough for Asami to get in a strike and knock him back. And then Asami peels away the cage. And then there's this moment where Hiroshi looks up at her, scared. Asami looks down at him, filled with anger. But then she hesitates. She calms. And in that moment, she doesn't become the very thing that she is fighting against. And that is where we see that moment of why uh, Asami is that hero type figure, because that's always the greatest challenge of the hero versus uh, like a, an antagonist is do you just, if you are so similar to them, you run the risk of following the same path they do in your goal to defeat them. And I love that Asami does not. And, you know, but in this moment, Hiroshi takes that opportunity to try to escape. He like sends like one, like a, an arm flinging and then, you know, tries to run away. And then Asami sends an electrocuting disc to incapacitate him, defeating him with his own technology. Ah, Kristen, some of your thoughts on this scene. Hoisted by his own petard. I freaking loved it. <laughs> like, cause that's, that's, it's been such a central struggle to all this is, you know, in the very beginning, we realized that the equalists are abnormally well-equipped for what they're doing. They're not just people shouting in the streets. They are an equipped militia in a sense that are ready to overthrow uh, the government of Republic city. And, you know, we eventually find out it's Hiroshi Sato, this, you know, essentially billionaire who's supporting them with his, like what feels like limitless funds based on the things he can afford to do. And it's, it, he's been one of the points of contention. Like, of course, Amon's been very frustrating, but Hiroshi's always, always been very frustrating too, because he has so many resources and he's been able to do so much and his conflict with Asami and the fact that even as unhinged as he becomes, he is a very sympathetic character because you can tell like this has just been a grief that has eaten away and rotted him from the inside out. And while obviously what he, he's done isn't forgivable, we they have built a pretty sympathetic character because it's obvious that the loss of his wife at the hands of a bender has had a huge psychological impact on him. And we're seeing the the fruition of that from years of 
basically him not going to therapy. So it's so satisfying to see, you know, these things he created to uh, destroy this symbol or, you know, destroy all these things that represent the benders to him to destroy Republic City, this place of peace and of, of this mingling of people. He tried to destroy it so that he could create this non-bender society with Amon and to see him go down at the hands of his own technology and at the hands of his own daughter is just this culmination of feelings. And it just ends in total satisfaction because we all know Asami is completely justified in what she did. And the fact that she is able to turn the technology her father basically introduced to her back on him is just this. It's just cherry on top of everything. It's so I loved it so much. <laughs> It, it, but it, at, at the same time, though, even though it's like this amazing, satisfying moment, and even though Asami won, in the end, she still loses in a way because she loses her father in that sense where, you know, he, he, he almost went too far with her and she had to put him down. And it, that, in a way, is kind of tragic in and of itself but uh kevin some of your thoughts on that scene so first love kristen's take on it um mine i was actually just thinking of it now um i think one of the other things i really like of this show and what it kind of brings in this season is the so the whole thing behind the equalists is that they are you know trying to equalize they're trying to take away the what they see as the oppression of the benders you know them using their bending to help oppress other people where what Sato was, you know, kind of standing for and was demonstrating here is that it doesn't matter who who has the power. It's how you use that power. I mean, what, at the end of the day, the equalists are going to take away everyone's bending and then it's going to be who can use, um, you know, electricity to oppress people more? It, you know, it's, I like that this whole season was towards the fact that you can't generalize about people. You can't assume these things. Like, and ultimately, this is the whole thing of Avatar. It's it's how you use your power. You know, the whole idea is, you know, you want to use it for good, use it for others, not use it to help oppress other people. And, you know, this is showing that it rings true with the Equalist, too. And Asami used it to just incapacitate him and hopefully find some way to eventually meet, you know, find a way again to bring him back, you know, help him see the light kind of a thing, whereas he was willing to just make the ultimate move and just take her out of the equation he wasn't even thinking about trying to bring her back well and it also sets up a really you know obviously where we kind of see this come full circle uh in in book four uh i love that where this ends and the opportunity that they set up uh for what we see in book four and i'm very excited for when we get to talk about that so back at the arena, Korra is powerless against Amon as he relishes in his victory. Then the lieutenant enters. He takes off his hood, crushes his goggles as he accuses Amon of lying to him. You traitor. I dedicated my life to you. Then he goes in to attack him and... Aman bloodbends him, suspending him in the air, chokes him out, 
and tosses him to the side. This, I feel like, is where we see the true Oman, Noatak, this cold, detached individual that we saw in Tarlok's flashback. It's just a blatant disregard to life because at the end of the day, that's what bloodbending is. And it's interesting because this Lieutenant is, is like a fascinating character throughout the season because he is doing so much. He is always trying to support Aman throughout this. He gets the crap beat out of him a lot, but he is always trying to find a way to further this mission. And I just think it's just amazing that he witnessed this and we truly see Aman just throw away another person amidst this moment. And then Aman turns his focus to Mako, but as he goes to blood bend him, Mako had used this time the lieutenant gave him to prepare lightning and he lights Amon up. It is just such a beautiful moment because he is completely just, you know, and then you just see his hand just barely move and then just the lightning comes crackling out of it. And he's able to use this moment to carry Korra out but can't make it as Amon tosses him through the hallway and sets him up to take his bending away. So before we get to this next moment, any thoughts on the lieutenant's entrance and this moment with Mako using his lightning bending? Poor mustache guy, because that's how I knew him. <laughs> I feel like there's... He was a true I, I believer. <laughs> he really was. And I feel like there's just a, just a hint of symbolism. I'm probably reading too much into it, but when I rewatch the episode and he gets tossed into a pile of like logs or like timber or something, like some wood. And I feel like it kind of symbolizes how Amon uses people. They are resources. They're not people. These are resources that are a means to an end. And just like once you've used your tools and you're and you're finishing up your project, you you set your tools aside, or if it's something you're not going to use again, or it had a one-time use, you might throw it away. Like when he gets tossed to the side like that into this pile of wood, it it feels like, you know, he was a tool that's now being discarded because his use is ended in this project. And Amon is, you know, like you said, just kind of discarding him. Mm. And I felt so bad for mustache guy. Cause he really was like, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was a zealot. He was so dead set on Amon being this hero and savior. And, you know, it, you know, people react one of two ways when these things happen is, you know, they some people do like him. They get really pissed and they're very reactionary or there are some people that go through denial and and can't see this person that they've set up as like this this idol in their mind to uh, to be this broken pedestal now, because that is basically what Amon's becoming is as as we start moving through the remainder of this. And Amon has things starting to fall apart and he starts to lose followers like, you know, his ever loyal lieutenant. Um, that's what's happening is he's falling into that broken pedestal trope where he built himself up and people felt like he was just this idolized everything that non-benders wanted that now is starting to crumble apart very slowly. Mm. Kevin? I, I love that. Like, just it's all 
just coming apart at the seams. Uh, you know, now Lou, the, I, he was kind of an analog for what everyone else is going to eventually feel, which is that they all actually believed in him. And now he's just discarding people that are in the way of him seeking, you know, to take down the Avatar. That it wasn't about this whole equalism, you know, which the lieutenant really believed in. It was about what he wanted. And they were all just vessels for, for what he was trying to do. Mm. Yep. No, great point. Great point, Kristen. That was awesome. Um, so as Amon sets up Mako to take his bending away, Korra cries out and says no as she punches the air and suddenly a blast of airbending comes out, pushes Amon back, and saves him. So I want to break this moment down because I remember when we were first discussing this uh, with Korracast and when this was coming out, <clears throat> personally, I did not like that this was the way that Cora learned airbending. It was just kind of like pushing, like punching through because it always, it felt so much like the antithesis of airbending. Um, but at this, but kind of revisiting it, I kind of see it a little bit in a different light. I see it as her kind of breaking through that spiritual wall and that this is such a moment of desperation that this is like someone that she cares so deeply about and that she is at such a low place, feels so helpless and so powerless that it's the only thing that she is able to do to be able to help him. So I want to get your your guys' thoughts on this, especially if you remember how you felt originally when you saw this and revisiting it this time around. I think revisiting it, I, I agree with you more because I think initially when I first saw it, I'm like, oh, come on. She's just going to fight, you know, push her way through it and it's all going to be fine and dandy. Um, but when you view it in the realm of she was desperate to save a friend, desperate to save all these people, then I'm like, okay. Uh, it kind of ties in a little bit later, a little bit more for me, um, having gone back and seen this. Because I initially only saw all these episodes once. Uh, like, I watched every episode of Legend of Korra once on the way through it. So now going back through, having seen the rest of the show and how the rest of this episode goes and this again, I, I see it working with the what they were trying to do a little bit better, but it still kind of, still kind of feels a bit God mode to me. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think looking back, I think we're more sympathetic because we understand the hurdles of the creators now. And we're like, Oh, okay. I get it. Like 11th hour superpower to save the day when you don't actually know if you're going to get to continue the series. But at the same time, I, I kind of felt mixed. I did. I did have that initial frustration. Like there's that, first reaction where you're like oh geez really this is the best you could do and at the same time i mean let's face it the core core literally like you said before core literally kind of like punches through her problems this is how she approaches everything but to, but to some extent she this isn't for herself this is for somebody else and it's for somebody who she has a connection with that is non-physical and while it may not necessarily be a spiritual connection um, I do think that 
compared to a lot of the other ways that she has tried to force her airbending out, you know, on non-physical objects and in practices and stuff. I think that it, in some ways it would almost make sense that it would come out her protecting somebody that she has these, uh, this emotional connection to, um, because she certainly doesn't obviously have a spiritual connection to latch on to. Um, so I, I guess the second best thing that you could do as far as activating airbending would go would be something that's a little bit more, you know, emotional and emporeal because, I mean, how else could they have possibly explained her activating her airbending all of a sudden? Because it wasn't just enough that Amon took away the other three forms of bending. You know, there had to, you know, they had to find some kind of reasonable trigger. And, you know, even if none of us believed it was true love, and we'll prove him right later. Um, <laughs> she's a teenager. And this is her first big romance. So it makes sense that, I mean, I remember how stupid I was about romance in my <laughs> teen years. It felt like life or death. And for her, it's literally a life or death situation. So I can imagine like the drama of being a teenager and having your first romance plus having that person threatened being in life or death situations and basically having a city falling apart around you. It, you know, there's nothing that unlocks that, that inner adrenaline and that, that miraculous occurrence more so than these kinds of moments. So, you know, it, I I will admit we probably could have found a more satisfying way if, you know, the writers and the creators had been given a better opportunity to create the, this content but at the end of the day it's not the most unreasonable way for her to unlock her airbending and let's face it it's not like she comes out as a pro airbender right off the bat it's pretty basic stuff <laughs> that's very true yeah, yeah I, I like that summary of it no I, I think that's a great point too I, I love the uh your point about it being especially fueled by you know teenage romance that is a very strong and powerful force <laughs> um but, you know, and I think I remember the at least the disappointment that I had and frustration that I had was that we had such a beautiful moment in at the end of the second episode of this season where Cora at the pro bending arena started to use the like the the, the movement and the footwork of her airbending training to be able to dodge the attacks that were coming in. And that was so beautiful because it's like, this is, that is, that is airbending. She has understood just even in this moment that it is about this idea of avoiding and just being able to become, you know, one with like the, like the wind going past you. And it just, that moment was so beautiful. And then to see like a punch, that was always what clashed with me. But it, like you said, it's also the way that Cora solves problems. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's interesting because we get to see that as a character flaw challenged and grown from over the course of the series. And I think that that was tough you know, with it being the one season. So moving on, Cora gets the better of Amon and sends him flying out the window and into the water. He descends 
into the depths as his mask rises to the top, to the surface of the water. The equalists call out, Evil Avatar, look what she did! But then Amon wakes up, underwater and in a panic. His instincts kick in and he waterbends himself back up to the surface. His scar makeup fading away, all in view of his supporters. They call him out. They turn against him. And then he escapes. It is this beautiful poetic justice that Amon's greatest strength was always the influence and the public. And the first person that we saw, the first person that we saw who introduced us to Amon was that guy at like this little mini rally in the park. And he's the one who sees Amon as this waterbender in this moment. It's, it's a really nice kind of full circle moment that we get from the first episode to this last episode. It's, terrible the only thing i can think of when i'm seeing this is hey he's a big bony a big fat bony <laughs> yes <laughs> so now aman who at this point is truly back to being noah talk returns to tarlock at his cell tarlock admits to him that he should have left with him when they were boys and Noah Talk says to him, leave with me now. We have a second chance. We can start over together. Please. You're all I have left in the world. It's a deeply impactful moment. I'm glad that we kind of see this moment. And it's interesting because he gets away. He's able to meet up with his brother, and now he is talking about starting a new life. As we have seen so much in this series, in Korra and in Avatar, and honestly in our own history, it repeats itself. Just as Yakon got away and started a new life, here is Noatok proposing the same thing. Then it shifts back to Korra. Her and Lin reunite. Bolin tries to look on the bright side and be like, hey, at least you got your airbending. They're like, dude, <laughs> read the room, Bolin. Come on, bro. <laughs> uh, and then a ship arrives in the distance. And who is it but Commander Boomy? Literally says nothing. Just screeches claps his hand and it's an iconic moment <laughs> i will never forget watching that for the first time and just laughing so hard at just like how silly and ridiculous it is to see him just like <laughs> and then tenzin's look of just pure dismay <laughs> oh god not this guy <laughs> not again Oh, my goodness. So then we get to, I think, one of the most powerful scenes of this entire of this entire season. Uh, if not, in my opinion, 
the entire series. So it goes back to Noatak and Tarlock. I love this scene so, so, so much. They're on a boat. Noatak seems optimistic as he is driving the boat and Tarlock is sitting in the back. Then it switches to Tarlock's point of view. He looks from the Equalist gloves to Noatak and then back to the gloves. In this moment, Noatak talks about how he almost forgot the sound of his own name. As he is kind of reflecting in this moment, we see Tarlock grab one of the gloves and unscrews the gas cap to the back of the boat. He holds the glove over it, and then he says, it will be just like the good old days. In this moment, we see Noatak shed a tear, and then the boat explodes. This is such an unbelievably bold choice. And it is one of my favorite things that the writers did. I I cannot love this scene enough because it is just, again, we've never truly seen a death like this in Avatar or Korra. We sort of see one later with Korra, but still it, it, the emotional weight behind it. In the end... Tarlock knew that the cycle would only continue. As their father had escaped to start again, he knew that he and his brother could not do the same, only to perpetuate a power too strong for the world. And my own personal opinion, I think it's one of the bravest act acts that any character all season does. Tarlock sacrifices his own life knowing that it is what is best for the world. And I think in this moment, he redeems himself. I was going to say, it was kind of his redemption arc through through the season. And it's, again, the whole thing where it's too bad that this is the amount of time they had um, or thought they had in order to bring this whole season to life. But it was interesting because you watching Tarlock go from how he started with Korra um, and then, you know, his breakdown and then him losing his bending and him telling Korra everything. And then to this, it's a very interesting arc. It's, it's a very, it's kind of an incredible arc. He, he ends up writing what he felt like was a wrong that had occurred in his life and that he was the one making the ultimate sacrifice so that, um, you know, Amon couldn't go doing all these things again. No, I, I wish we could have had more with it. Mm. I agree. I, I, I feel like for how much they invested in the drama of the brothers, it's it's a bittersweet ending. But at the same time, it's like I almost hate to call it satisfying because it's like it's it's literally a murder suicide. So mm. <laughs> it's not something that should seem, you know like such a good way to end it but it kind of does because i can i can i can almost sort of relate to it because and I, I told you this before there's a reason why i was somewhat grateful that i didn't make it to 
uh, the episode 11 talk. And that's because the story between these two brothers is very relatable to me. And I can understand the feeling of what feels like futility in the face of fate and that this cycle continues to happen and you feel like you're forced to move within the cycle, that there is no alternative path, that there are boundaries blocking your way and keeping you from escaping from this, you know, cyclical occurrence because, you know, whether we're talking about humanity as a whole and society and cultures going through cyclical things, or even just generations of people, there are a lot of people that even though they feel great opposition to those who came before them, somehow, you know, some of them find themselves walking the same paths. And when they realize it, they feel like there's a futility in fighting that cycle. And Tarlock could have given into it. And while it's certainly sad that he felt like this whole, you know, killing himself and his brother was the only way to end what they viewed as their father's tyranny at the same time, like, I can understand why he felt like this was the best decision to make because after both of them essentially followed in their father's footsteps to some degree, I can understand how he felt like it was futile for them to really do anything else. You know, he, it was his only chance to stop his brother. You know, he recognized that the, the blood bending that they were doing, how harmful it was, the damage they had done and how they had both somehow managed to, do the thing that they hated the most and that was become their father. So I, I can kind of see how all of this culminated in it. I can see how the writers were almost pushed into a corner with that decision because if they knew that they might not get another season and they wanted to write it in a way where these characters and their emotional journey and the, the culmination of their trauma and their experiences led them to something it, it, makes sense that Tarlock would do this, especially when we learned that he was actually the little brother, even though in the beginning we would have assumed he was the awful brother. He was actually the little brother who made the right decision. The person who was actually empathetic in those situations and his brother was the one that wasn't. Um, it was appropriate that he was the one that made this choice and ended this cycle of violence that he and his brother had thought they were going to end and ended up just perpetuating. Very well said. It, it really is just fascinating. And it, you really do think about that's, I think one of the biggest what ifs. Um, if they knew that they had a chance to do more, would they have made this same choice? And again, I think it's just, it's it's very interesting that they decided to go with this because and the fact that they were able to do it with Nickelodeon as well. I mean, that still blows my mind because they they were barely able to just show Jet die. <laughs> and that was like It's ambiguous. <laughs> I mean, that was like that was that was the closest they got to anything like that and we we under we do understand that like Cora is for sure uh, you know it's a much kind of darker tone and it's more geared towards teenagers but still this moment is not something that I would expect at all from a kid's show at, ever and I think that 
it really is something that shows that these writers, given the opportunity, were going to do amazing things with this world. And I'm just so grateful for the fact that we got three more seasons. Because if it would have just ended after this, it would have been nice. I would have been sad. But they wrapped it up. And that was just the villain side of things. Let's get into how they wrap up Korra's side of the story. We're back at the Southern Water Tribe. And a sad score plays as the main characters are all sitting there anxiously waiting. Katara emerges and says that she cannot heal Korra and that her ties to the other elements have been severed. Korra emerges as Tenzin says it's going to be all right. But she says, no, it's not. I think in this moment, and we'll see this as it this scene continues. Again, it's this idea of identity. So much of the way we see Korra from the very first moment that we see her as a kid. She is already bending three elements. She has been attached to this identity of the Avatar and specifically to being a firebender, a waterbender, and an earthbender for so long. And now that's gone. She does have airbending, but so much of who she thought she was has been stripped away from her without her consent. And the other side of it is that she realizes the ultimate truth of the Avatar, something that harkens back all the way to the original series. When Aang says he will never firebend again, and Guru Patik says to him, you are an avatar. Therefore, you are a firebender. The avatar is the one who can bend all four elements. And suddenly when she can't, not only is her identity of being a bender stripped away, but her identity as the avatar is stripped away. And we feel that weight in her expression and through the lines that Janet Varney delivers. I I am just, I mean, we, we haven't given as much of a shout out as I think we should have, but Janet Varney as Cora is just absolutely outstanding. She brings such an amazing level of like dynamism to Cora as a character from her excitement to her seriousness to her depression to everything in between and it is just it's just ah it's so good so before I keep going any further I just want to get initial thoughts of this moment kind of 
uh, of this realization, Korra coming out, uh, realizing that her identity has been stripped away before she goes off on her own. Again, just too bad they had to cram it all in. But I do like that they have, you know, that they break her down, as we'll see, into, you know, her darkest place. Where she's actually able to accept what will be coming. I agree. I think it's a really good counterpoint to beginning of season Korra. Because she came into everything headstrong, confident. You know, that's it. You know, and it's funny, too, because they really kind of balance her her prowess with the the first three elements she learns with her teenage like I'm invincible attitude because all teenagers feel invincible. That's a phase we all go through is like a sense of invincibility, like I can't be touched. And, you know, they combine that with being able to bend three elements and you have this, you know, as we see a very headstrong destructive individual and i feel like this was as we've said so many times throughout this you know for the time they had to represent this issue um it really does kind of help level her out bring her back down to earth and and help us see the the initial progression because while she has improved throughout the series you know there needs to be consequences and, and she gets that throughout the series. Every time she makes poor decisions or she falls into a mom's traps, you know, there are consequences and, you know, this was the big epic, you know, big bad guy battle of the end. There had to be a major consequence for her to cope with. And this was a really good one because like you said, this was her identity being stripped away. And that's not easy because literally through your teenage years, you're discovering your identity. And this is somebody who was handed her identity very early on and has very closely associated herself with being the avatar and having these abilities and her responsibilities. And so since she's had that from an abnormally low age, because as we recall, typically 16 is when the avatar was told about their identity and then they were trained like Aang. She started young, even younger than Aang actually. And so this has been her self-appointed identity for as long as we've known her. And now suddenly it's gone. It is devastating and you can tell like you said uh, i'm glad you said something about the voice actor she really is a roller coaster of a human being like she really was very poignant in all the right moments and i you can totally believe the utter dejection she feels in those moments because she really does sell it to us so at this moment cora decides to leave um and before she can head out Mako comes out and confesses his love for her. And Korra is obviously in such an, an emotionally unstable place that she just doesn't even know how to respond to that. And she immediately has to remove herself from the situation. It's so crappy of him, too. It's I know. He is Mako and Bolin not reading the room this episode. <laughs> I know. I know. He is so awful. Like, first he gaslights the crap out of Asami, and then he can't even recognize the darkness that she is, like, completely submerged in. That is, that is a completely a moment of gratification for himself. 
And mm-hmm. yep, it's a I'm rookie so mistake. Mad. Gosh, I hate to see it. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah, I hated him in that moment. Yep. And Tenzin comes out and is like, "Hey, you need to be patient with her. It's going to take time for her to accept what has happened." Then, <clears throat> it, 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 I, I love the uh, the parallels too. Um, in this kind of moment, because uh, for the Patreon live stream, we went back and rewatched uh, the first episode of Legend of Korra, and the moment of freedom that she experiences when she rides out on Naga, leaving the White Lotus compound, versus the level of dejection and just the way she views herself writing out this time. It's, it's such a powerful parallel and she ventures out to a frozen cliff and walks to the edge. She looks out at the sea, begins to cry and watches as a tear falls I, I do want to talk about this moment and I I do want to give a uh, just a trigger warning for folks that the topic that we I think at least are, are going to be bringing up in this is this contemplation of suicide. Um, so if that's something that you are not comfortable with, uh, we'll put in a timestamp uh, for when this part of the discussion is over uh, right now. One hour, 33 minutes, 24 seconds. So I would argue here, and I, I've seen other folks too, as I've always kind of explored different, uh, you know, visual essays and pieces that were written about this first season of Korra and specifically this ending uh, episode and this ending, these ending scenes is that Korra in this moment is, I think, considering the option of would it be better for her to end herself in this moment to move the avatar cycle on since she herself cannot be the avatar that the world needs. Um, I don't know. I, I want to get your, your guys opinion on that. If you think that that is something that's reading too far into it. Um, if that's not what you saw in that moment, but I just wanted to get your kind of thoughts on this moment because it, however you look at it, it's intense and it's Cora at an all time low. It's a, a beautiful life type of a situation. You know, the, what if I had never been born or wasn't here anymore? I can see it. I agree. And, and going back to the whole concept of her identity being stripped away, um, very often people who, who reach points of suicide for any one of the variety of reasons that they do, very often it is people who feel like they have nothing left to give, like everything's been taken away and they feel like they cannot rise back up from that point of just, you know, rock bottom. Um, so it, in, in some ways it could make sense. And again, going back to teenage hormones, I mean, that, that, is an age where this is most common as well um because everything is amplified by the emotions and by the experiences that people are having now imagine being a teenager going through these hormonal changes 
and having the level of responsibility and having the traumas and things that she's experienced as well. It's, it's not an unreasonable thing. And they already proved to us with the brothers that that was something that, that wasn't out of bounds for characters. So it, in some ways it it makes sense that she might potentially consider slipping into that darkness. Um, I, I, I don't obviously, obviously, you know, we don't feel like that would happen. The creators obviously wouldn't want something like that to happen. So I didn't, while I could sense that darkness that they were trying to uh, emulate and show us, I never really considered it, considered it to go so far as be suicide. But if that was the case, I do wonder, we have established that if the avatar is killed in the avatar state, then it breaks the cycle. It's never actually mentioned an avatar who's lost their elemental connection. And I almost wonder if if something had happened, whether intentional or accident to Korra in the end, without and she did not have those three elements, she didn't have access to them, how that might impact the next avatar incarnation if they would struggle more to regain that connection. Because we see how past lives impact future lives. So if if she had made that fateful decision, how was that going to impact the lives of the future avatars that followed in her footsteps? Mm. Definitely. That, very interesting, too. And, and the way that I always kind of saw that, and I, I, I think that at least where the crux of where I have always felt with that argument was that we have always known that the the trigger for the past lives to intervene or the avatar state to come in is when the avatar's life is threatened and it is a life or death situation. And I love that instead of a eruption of power, it's a quiet, subtle moment as Aang approaches. First, we don't realize it's him. I love the absolute, I absolutely love this reveal it is so brilliant because we see the robe and Cora says not now Tenzin and then we hear him you called me here as the camera kind of widens out and we see Aang older Aang and in this moment Aang says to her you finally connected with your spiritual self Korra asks, like, how? And he says, when we hit our lowest point, we are open to the greatest change. Aang then places his hands on her and restores her bending as all of her past lives look on. (sighs) This moment is just so, just, uh, it's so wholesome in the sense of, having Aang being able to share this type of wisdom. And when he shares that line, it's one of those ones where it just, it hits in very much the same way that a lot of uncle Iroh's lines hit in the original series, that it is so much of a, a representation of the spirit of avatar as a show. And, how on point it is for this moment. 
Um, so I don't know what, what was that like for you guys, especially, I don't know if you remember like watching that for the first time, uh, seeing Ang in this moment, what was that like for you? And especially kind of revisiting that any new insights? I think I just appreciated more this ending going through it again, um, in terms of how they set it up with, you know, her being broken down to her very basic instincts. And then all of a sudden you see Ang, oh, Ang. He's back. We only got to see him at that trial and he was getting blood bended. It was so sad. (laughs) (laughs) And now here he is, you know, continuing the cycle, so to speak, not only physically, but spiritually. And you're safe. Yay. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I had, I remember my reaction was mixed because it and again, you know, looking back on it now, I, I can appreciate uh, all the things that the writers and creators went through. Um, but it definitely felt like, again, the 11th hour moment where, you know, somebody just swoops in and happens to rectify these things. But there, I think it was mostly overwhelmed by the nostalgia of just seeing Aang and, uh, and, and seeing the Avatar state and the other avatars. It was, it was definitely this, it was a satisfying moment that kind of like, pushed aside the whole like oh it's an 11th hour moment where everything's miraculously fine at the end okay no consequences she doesn't have to go through like a spiritual journey to like you know basically go through angst thing and just relearn all the elements because that's basically what she would have potentially been is she would have been an airbender and she would have had to find ways to reconnect with each element and i'm sitting here like whoa three more books but no I didn't know what was going on at the time. I didn't realize that they had that risk of potentially not having more seasons. And I am grateful for the books I got for sure, but I was definitely looking forward to Cora having to relearn these elements that she basically specialized in for her whole life. It would have been uh, quite a trip. Um, But yeah, it was great seeing Aang again and seeing all the other avatars. It was so cool. I, I, I am right there with you. That is uh one of the biggest things of the what ifs of what I would change, honestly, if they knew that they had more seasons is that I, I think I would have had it so that Ang says, you know, Hey, we're here. We can help you unlock like a connection to, you know, the avatar state, but you have to find a way to rebuild from here. And I I think that just it would have been so potent and so interesting because I think that it, it would have it would have solved a lot of the issues that I think I personally had with going into book two of Korra, that it felt like because she got this get out of jail free card, that the impact and the consequences, like you said, didn't have as much of the weight and I think it would have been so interesting for her to have to live with those consequences for a little bit longer. Um, but to be fair, this isn't the first time they've kind of done this to us. Because when Aang got shot down by Azula in the Avatar state, we kind of get a miraculous, you know, Aang's fine in the next one. But do you remember? Uh, I mean, I don't know if you guys remember all the really cool content that Nickelodeon put out in the middle. That kind of mm, yes. Oh my gosh, with all the past through. avatars. Yes. Yes. Oh. If they could have given me that, at least I think I might have oh, been satisfied. Man, those like were really cool. more lore dumps. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, we'll we'll uh, we'll link to some of those as well. So basically, between uh, book two and book three, they came out with these like it was kind of like it was primarily images. There was some like very minimal animation to them, but it was Ang going back and speaking with all of his past lives. So he was speaking with Roku, with Kyoshi, with Kurok, and with Yang Chen, and it was so interesting to see him like going back through this journey and restoring himself to get to the point where we see him at the beginning of, of book three. So Aang comes in, restores her power, and then she does an insane show of bending force, summoning all four elements in succession. And in the background is Mako, who looks on. She runs to him, tells him that she loves him too, they kiss. And this is the other moment that I want to talk about. <laughs> because, again, we're keeping in mind the large grade of salt. Uh, that was the fact that they thought the series was going to end on this episode. But, again, I... I, I know. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, especially because we were just, like, how beautiful of an ending it was with Aang and Katara at the end of Avatar. And then this felt just like, <laughs> like such a, it was such a knockoff. Cheap imitation. <laughs> yes. Yep. Seriously. Cheap imitation. Uh, this, is, this is Aang and Katara light. This is the very disappointing Diet Coke. Like you ordered a regular <laughs> Coke, they gave you a Diet Coke and you're just kind of sitting there like, mm, aspartame and cancer. Like, no, thank you. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. I, 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 again, I think that was like the biggest thing that I experienced throughout this, like watch through of this season was like how much I was just done with Mako. <laughs> and I get it. It's writing him as the love interest, but like it just, that to me, I think out of all the things that were sacrificed and lost from rushing through a, a single season, I think that that was my least favorite thing was how they were forced together. But at the end of the day, I, I can't be mad at it because we get more seasons and the way things resolve is so amazing. <laughs> no, that's fair. Cause I was about to say like, you can't make excuses <laughs> for that. Cause as much as I load Katara throughout the entire first series I've, I've, I've semi forgiven her, but I still like least favorite character ever. <laughs> no, they built an awkward, but cute chemistry between the two. Cause you know, Ang and her had very similar caring personalities. And even when they messed up, they were very quick to apologize. There's been Asami. Asami has been a force of karma throughout this, but for the most part, like Mako doesn't truly suffer for what a terrible boyfriend he is. You know, aside from the grief he gets from Asami, like his reputation doesn't suffer. Um, you know, he still has all his friends. He still has Asami as a friend. Um, you know, there, there's no real consequences for his poor behavior. And it reflects a little too well on reality for me because I'm sitting here like somebody burn him, like literally burn <laughs> him. I cannot with this kid. 
I hated him so much by the end of season one, which was sad because I was I was looking forward to him almost being like a redemption Zuko. But then I got Iroh, which worked out wonderfully. <laughs> and he was only in like two episodes. <laughs> yeah, but you know, by the time Iroh shows up, I hated Mako so much that I needed Iroh. And Iroh was the perfect, like I was totally, by the time Iroh shows up, I'm like spontaneous romance with Iroh and and Cora, I'm totally down for it. But <laughs> now that I know the age gap, I'm really glad that that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so mad at that. So mad. Kevin, some of your thoughts. <laughs> I have to agree. Guy's a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I felt like between the her kind of getting the powers back and them having to kiss at the end. I was pretty good with all the rest of the rushed writing. I think the last few minutes of this kind of felt like, uh, if that was the end, that might've been rough to know that those are like the very last moments. Um, whereas I would have, I wouldn't have minded it being something maybe a little bit more serious or just her with Aang. That could have been fine too. That could have been good. Yeah. I don't know. I'm happy it didn't have to end there. Yes. Let's say that. <laughs> it's truly the it's truly the uh the gift of uh of knowing knowing where things go. Um so but in terms of plot, uh I am an unabashed gigantic fan of the plot of this season. Yes, absolutely. Um so before we kind of get into final thoughts, we have the last scene, which is Cora restoring Lynn's bending, which I mean, I, I I mean I love because Lynn deserves it. Lynn deserves everything for everything that she has done. <laughs> she is the true hero, and I am I am so glad. E- even if there was a way where like Ang was like, "Look, I can't restore your bending, but you can restore other people's bending." That would have been great because Lynn would be like, "All right, cool. I'm going to teach you earth bending." Like, how dope would that have been? Ah. Oh. <laughs> Oh man, Lynn as a mentor would be both amazing and brutal. I could see her like Marine Corps drill sergeant just oh my goodness. Tough on steroids. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh my god. I suddenly need this. I really, really, really need Lynn as a mentor to Cora so bad. I and I need it as like a rocky like the rocky movies like the montage of him training (laughs) just lynn brutalizing her please yes so uh as cora restores lynn's bending uh tenzin approaches and he says i'm so proud of you avatar cora assurance from ang assurance from tenzin airbender approved and you know this is the that's the final moments um i mean it's it's nice but again i'm glad that it wasn't the absolute final because it just is a little too neatly tied up um i that's again i'm right there with you kevin i was okay with the rushed writing it is these final scenes that i think i have the biggest issue with and i think a lot of people do uh from all the conversations that i've had with folks it is i think these final moments that people have the hardest time really accepting 
Um, just because it, it really is like, oh crap, we ran, we have two minutes left. Quick, get everything in to wrap up this yes. entire season Sneak and series. <laughs> so let's get into final thoughts of this episode and this season as a whole um, as we are kind of wrapping up. So uh, whoever wants to go first, let's hear it. I'll say this. I like I was saying, the, I think the implications, philosophical implications of this whole season were incredible. I'm almost a little sad that after this, they're like, oh, there's no more equalist problems anymore. Everything's cool. Um, I feel like they could if they had the time to do a couple of seasons just on this, I'd have loved every moment of it. Um, but loved the season, loved everything that, you know, kind of the, the deep topics that they dove into um, in terms of equalism, you know, like what's right and things like that. And if it just didn't have this, you know, I'd say nine out of 10 on the season, even eight out of 10, if you have to go that far down. And a lot of that averaging out kind of comes from these last few minutes. <laughs> Oh, the fights were so good too. I mean, that's, this that's always a, what. Like, I wish we had more back. time for more fights. Yeah, more <laughs> thing, as you had said in the for episode eleven, like more development of scenes where they had to, they had to focus plot versus scenes for the whole season because well that was it. <laughs> Everything had to serve two purposes. You can have an Ember Island players. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> An an updated modern version of Ember Island Players, where it's like more of a contemporary theater play of like telling the story of Korra. Oh my god, that would be so nuts. <laughs> uh, Kristen, thoughts? Overall, I think it's I think it's a really good episode. We definitely got some satisfying moments like Iroh lightning bending out of his plane and Asami with her father and you know so many things but you know of course we pointed out that due to uh constraints that we we I mean I almost would have agreed that we probably could have stopped at Aang because as satisfying as the moment where Ling gets her bending back is um it, like you said, it, it it's it's such a neat little package. It's like they wrapped it up super pretty. They put the tape on it. There's a bow on top, and it's like here you go. And it's like, mm, you know, for how dark and brooding. I mean, it's nice to end on a lighter note for how difficult a season it was with the traumas and experiences that were had. But I mean, really, it didn't need to go past Ang. We certainly didn't need the kiss. And as much as I enjoyed seeing Lynn get her bending back and watching her bend again, and you could just see that, you know, it, it the level, uh, the, the dynamics between Lynn and Cora have now changed and the respect that Lynn has for Cora has changed and it's improved. You know, obviously, you know, Lynn had a decent repertoire with her by the time she lost her bending. Um, but, you know, Cora who was stripped of her identity for a brief moment, basically, you know, had a moment to relate to Lynn and now they've both have gone through this journey together and they can both relate to that loss. You know, I, I love that connection that they now have, but it could have come later. It, it didn't have to happen right then. If that was going to be the last episode, I think it would have been safe to assume that once Cora had her bending back and, you know, 
it was implied that she would have the ability to energy bend and give everybody else their bending back. I think we all would have assumed that she returned everybody's bending. That's kind of a given. It's not something that had to be spelled out for us. Like we wouldn't have assumed it. So, um, yeah, yeah. Just give me, give me my ang nostalgia wrap up what has been a dark, depressing and frustrating season on a nice little high note. So I don't feel utterly depressed and, uh, you know, give me my Mako abuse next season. <laughs> yeah, uh, definitely agree. Um, I, I think, you know, this ep- episode really had some uh, some great moments of action. I, I still I love that scene of uh, Korra and Mako hiding from Amon. It is just it's so good and how quickly all of that goes down. Um, and the scene with Amon and Tarlock, I, I think that the biggest thing that I have to give props for, for this season is Amon. I think he is one of the most interesting villains that they had written up until this point. We got to really see something really dynamic with him. Um, I, I feel like, especially with the backstory that we got from Tarlock and how it was this product he was a byproduct of, you know, this malevolence from Yakon and him fleeing and kind of distilling a lot of his hatred and his view of the world into his children and how that echoes into this new series, I thought was so great. Um, I love the way that it concluded in terms of his arc. Again, it would have been fascinating to see what they would do with it, but at the same time, that scene on the boat, I will, it is, for me, top five favorite villain, like antagonist deaths of all time. It is just such a beautiful moment for me. And I remember watching that for the first time and I began to cry. I just thought it was just such a powerful, potent moment. And it still gets me to this day. Um, But yeah, so... That concludes my final thoughts, but I have a little bonus round for us uh, to kind of conclude this episode. I have two what ifs. The first is what if the series ended there? What do you think that the show's legacy would be and how people would look back on it? I'm trying to think it would be generally more or less positive than it is now. I have a feeling most people would tend to like it more because i think people had different feelings on the next few seasons especially the second yeah yeah it definitely brought like an element of edginess that uh ang and his gang didn't really have i mean we got we got a little bit of it in that in the third book but it, it wasn't quite as dark and edgy as this was so but at the same time this season is as well done as it was and even though it is a, I mean, let's face it, the whole non-bender revolution is a completely reasonable reaction in this world of benders. This is uh, out of all, like the things that happen later on, um, especially the next season, starts to get a little bit more into the extremes. But but what happens here? is such a strong mirror of reality and how people react to 
groups or certain people getting special treatments and things like that. We, we, we see a very strong uh, mirror of reality in this particular season and, and arguably in the third season too, but there's some extremes in there um, that you kind of have to push the envelope with a bit. But in this season, this is the most gritty down to earth season of the three. And I think I agree with Kevin that this one is probably the least controversial in certain ways, even though we see things that are controversial, like what happened with the brothers for the most part, it's, it's so steeped in realism and things that have historically happened that, you know, it, it's hard to like, argue against it like things that happen later on there's a lot of things where it's like uh there 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 were a lot of like it could have gone this way i feel like the way this was written was really well done was very it didn't it didn't push the envelope hard it did push the envelope compared to the original series but it didn't push it too hard you didn't have to suspend a lot of imagination to see how certain things played out in the series so i do think this doesn't really drum up a lot of controversy you can watch this and go yeah i i get it okay this is cool so yeah i think that if this had been the end um despite the very end i think that it was a very well written season for what it was so the second of the what ifs We've kind of been touching on this uh, throughout and we've kind of all had our moments with everything here. But again, it's the what if they knew they had more? What personally would you have changed and what would you have kept? We could go on and on with this, but I'm going to kind of say biggest changes that you would make and biggest things that you would keep. More Iroh. I wish I had <laughs> more eyebrow. <laughs> I, I mean, even later on, we just, we always get inklings of them. And I don't know if part of it was just Dante's schedule. I don't know what else he's doing. That's more important than avatar. I don't think he could have been doing anything more important than avatar, but I would have, I would have loved it just because he is a perfect bridge to our last season. Uh, series. I mean, I understand that Korra is a reincarnation, and I know that Tenzin is the son of Aang, but we get more last series satisfaction out of the brief moments we have with Iroh than we do with Tenzin very often. And, you know, he he's he's this really great adhesive between the two series that gives older, fr- older uh, uh, fans a lot of satisfaction because he makes these references that aren't necessarily obscure but really kind of like give us nice warm fuzzy feelings like oh my god that's right i would have loved to have seen more of him and a lot less mock <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's that's what you would have uh what you have changed like what what are what's one of the biggest things that you would have you would have kept the way it is uh even like a choice that they made uh, that seemingly was a kind of singular season choice. Asami's vengeance. <laughs> <gasps> Her sick burns towards the end when Ma- when Mako's just fumbling with himself. She, I think, a lot of people weren't sure how they were ready to feel about Asami. I know a lot of the people who were already invested in Korra and Mako were like, "Ew, who's this?" You know, they're just they're just drumming up the drama. 
But I don't know if it was intentional or not, but Asami built herself as a staple character, her strong personality, like her, her determination, her, her desire to overcome obstacles in her way and not give up and not surrender to, you know, all of these things that felt so dismal at times in the series. She's such a phenomenal character. And, and I, well, I didn't like her at first simply because she just seemed like an obstacle thrown in the way and not really like she was, she seemed like a gimmick. It's like, whatever, just, you know, I don't, I don't need a, I don't need a filler character. I just want my, my avatar gang, but to be fair, avatar team avatars always had a non-bender. So it made perfect sense that, that, you know, she'd be tossed in the mix. I just didn't realize it was going to be like a romantic obstacle because that of course is not something we dealt with too much in the last series, but <laughs> I, I would definitely keep her. Like, I know some people have very strong feelings against her in the first season, but I think she ended up being absolutely amazing. And as we discussed earlier, her arc with her and her father, that drama was so intense and it added a lot to the story in my opinion. All right, Kevin, what you got? So it was the thought that if they knew going into this season that they were going to have more seasons or going into like this last you know episode or two, they knew they were getting another season. Uh, going into this season, knowing that they had more seasons. Probably my one change would be the length. I mean, I know we keep saying, you know, the how they had to write themselves in. There was just so many different stories that they had going on in this and concepts um you know, everything from the Tarlock redemption to uh, really just the whole plot up or like teasing out more of this whole equalist thing. I'd have just loved more. I'd have loved like a more traditional 20 episode season, like the first books instead of the more compressed uh, 12 episode seasons that they were given and worked with. That may have been my preference. If I was to keep anything I'm first going to just second Kristen's uh, point about Asami, because initially she just kind of seemed like a like a toss in, but became so much more integral later. So it was good that they kept her in and and involved her the way they did. And I mean, the story with her father, I mean, that alone you could have expanded on, too, um, with more time. The other thing I'd probably want to try and keep is no boy. That's actually tough because I'm trying to think. No like, what pressure. Would be There's so... a lot to choose from. I know. I'm like, if I was trying to think like the most integral thing to this whole season, what I would have to keep. Milo. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Actually, that's a good point because I thought at first he was too silly. Um, but I think him and Bolin both provide just the necessary light balancing that Avatar needs to have. Like, these were some really super serious concepts that they were going into. They needed to have the, you know, little quib here or there, um, which might seem like if someone was like, you know, trying to explain this show to their friends, they're like, oh, well, it's, and they're like, oh, well, it's on Nickelodeon. It's a cartoon. It's like, well, well, yes, there is, you know, humorous things to it, but it's also very serious. Um, but this show was started on Nickelodeon, born on Nickelodeon, carried on Nickelodeon. It needs to have a little bit of fun here and there. <laughs> And you could, because could you imagine this whole, if you took out, you know, any of those comedic things, what you get, it's so dark. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've seen what happens when you take out the comedy of Avatar. Uh, and it is I wasn't going to say it. 
Oh my god. It's I swear to God, please, please, Netflix show, do not get rid of the humor. I'm putting this out there. Please. Yeah, I, I, think, I was I think just re-listening to that announcement too that we did, like, <laughs> and listening to all the optimism in that announcement that oh. you, me, and Kevin had, and I'm just like, literally, just two days ago on Friday, I was listening to it, and I'm just sitting here like, oh my goodness, please let let this good vibes keep going. I swear, <laughs> we sound so optimistic, and I'm like, we haven't heard any news or any updates really, and I'm just sitting here like. <sighs> Please let it still be good. Oh, my goodness. So personally for me, biggest thing I would have changed is I would not have Cora get all of her bending back um, in the same way that it was before. Uh, I absolutely love the idea that she would have to work through that again, that she is back to this idea the same way that Aang was in the series where she was going to have to learn because goodness gracious, finding the teachers and the opportunity that that would have presented because you know what we could have had? We could have had Lynn as the earthbending teacher. We could have had Iroh as the firebending teacher. And we could have had someone like Kaya as the waterbending teacher. This is even a bit of Katara too, technically. Yeah, Katara and Kaya. I, I think like both of them, especially you, you would just the possibilities that you could bring in for that. I feel like just it, it, it could have been, it could have added such a, a a really interesting dynamic layer, and I think it would have just been such a challenge for Korra to face because I think that her getting th- getting off so easily from all of this is. I think it, 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 I think it's a lot of the issue of what I have with with the second book. But I think they make up for it in spades with what they do at the end of se- of book 3 going into what she has to deal with in book 4. I think that that is very much them revisiting this end of book 1 into book 2 that they said okay Here's what happens when there is an intense amount of consequences and how long that is going to take for her to recover from it. And that's what I really appreciated. And I think it would have been super fascinating to see that going into book two. In terms of what I would have kept, even if they knew that they were going to be getting more seasons, I still would have kept the Amon Tarlock conclusion. Um, I, again, think that is just such a beautiful but tragic scene and i think that even if they knew that there was gonna be more happening by aman disappearing and never being seen from again it's this idea of okay here's the question does that spirit live on in terms of what he stood for even though we know and the people know that he was a waterbender how much of that still persists in the end? And I think it would have been fascinating to see if he, you know, because he's gone, it's always up in the air. And this idea of like, is he still around? Will he come back? I don't know. So that concludes it, folks. Episode 12, Endgame. 
in the first book of Legend of Korra. Whew, we did it, guys. <laughs> oh, my goodness. All the way through. Yep. So we will be approaching book two. I'd say uh, it's going to be closer to middle to end of February. Um, we've got some really fun episodes planned uh, coming in the future here. Obviously, we are working on our Avatar D&D campaign uh, that we're going to be featuring. But one of the things that we've heard from our patrons is that they are interested in hearing a little bit more of our character deep dives again. So you may be wondering, hey, what, what, what do they have a say in it? Well, folks... That is very much a part of what comes with the perks of being a patron for the show. Uh, During our monthly live stream that we do with our patrons, we kind of have a conversation with them to talk about what is it that they're enjoying and some of the suggestions of what they'd like to see from the show. If you want to get in on that, uh, you can become a patron of the show, help support it, get access to a bunch of awesome bonus content. Um, We are also going to be releasing to our patrons the kind of pilot test run that we are doing of the Avatar D&D campaign uh, because that's going to be a way of us learning through things. So if that's something you're interested in hearing, uh, take a look at our patron uh, Patreon. You can join for as little as a dollar a month uh, up to a $15 tier that we offer. And to learn more about that, you can visit us at patreon.com slash legend of portalcast. Um, so before we get into the social medias and all that stuff, special, special thanks Kristen, Kevin, for joining me on this ride for concluding book one. You guys had such great points. Thank you so much for everything that you brought to uh, the show today. Thank you for having us, Colin. Now I'm going to go wallow in my sorrows that the Packers lost. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's been awesome. This was, this was a great season. I mean, it was a great series and I, I love talking about it just because I do feel like, and, and of course, I would never bash on the original series. I love it so much, but the the depths of Legend of Korra never cease to amaze me. And even years after watching the series, I still learn new things about it constantly. And I just, I love talking about it so much. And I can't wait for season two. Yes. So, folks, uh, to find us on the social medias, we are on Instagram and Facebook at Legend of Portalcast. We are on Twitter at Portalcast Pod. You can also find our YouTube channel as well at Legend of Portalcast. And you can always give us a shout through our email at legendofportalcast at gmail.com with some of your thoughts and suggestions on the show. Um, and then if you're listening to us on iTunes, Please go on there if you feel so inclined. Leave us a rating and review. Uh, we really appreciate it. We just got another review, a, a special shout out. Thank you so much uh, again for just the positive thoughts uh, and all of the feedback. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, one of the biggest things that we got from that is that I had a fan looking for a release schedule for our Rise of Kiyoshi uh, Beyond Portal cast episodes. Uh, so be on the lookout at the end of the month, uh, Marilyn and I are going to be working on putting together a release schedule for that because it is our goal. Now we have to get through all of the rise of Kyoshi before the shadow of Kyoshi comes out later this year. Um, so we will be announcing that, um, also be on the lookout. We're going to be having this avatar D and D campaign coming soon. Um, we're going to have uh, some really fun, 
uh, kind of sharing some of the uh, like character pages and stuff, a little bit of info about all the characters that everyone's playing. Um, I know I am getting super jazzed about this. Uh, Kristen and Kevin are going to be two of the characters so far. Um, And looks like we're going to be having Susan and Daniel on as well. Um, So folks, thank you all so much for listening. We are here at the end of the first book of Korra and we're going to be moving on to book two soon, but stay tuned for next week as we're going to be diving into something a little different, but you'll have to see what it is. And for now, and until next time, let us leave.